0: Welcome to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Amago Day because equality and dignity of BIPOC and LGBTQ lives matter. This week, we're talking about spooky encounters and experiences that just don't seem to have an explanation. How do we determine what's real and what's not? What might be a mental health condition and what might be something from another world? Spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle is our co-host, along with yours truly, Kendra R. Snow. In this episode, we are continuing our redefined series, Creating Bigger Boxes for a Bigger God, and today we're discussing the unseen world and things science still doesn't have an explanation to. <laughs> so... It's getting close to Halloween. I think everyone's in the spooky mood. Mm-hmm. And I think it raises some legitimate questions about the parts of our world that don't seem to have an explanation. I mean, there are tons of shows out there on haunted encounters and ghost encounters and people believing that they're having this experience with, uh, with things that are unseen. And it's interesting because I think for me... I had a spooky encounter when I was about six years old, and a part of me thinks that this is also kind of uh, maybe a background to why I became kind of religious. I'm intrigued. Yes, and here is the story. (laughs) It was a dark and stormy night. No, but it was nighttime, and I was about six years old, and at the time I was living with my mom and my two brothers, And in perfect 90s fashion, I had my own room and my own TV. (laughs) (laughs) One night, my dad was, he's serving in the military and he was overseas. And I woke up in the middle of the night to this presence being in the room. I could see it. It was a physical manifestation, but it looked like my father. So it was a ghost. It was a outline of my dad. And this presence was just sitting in the room. And actually standing and staring at me. But I wasn't immediately afraid because it had a very friendly appearance. (gasps) Casper the friendly ghost. That's where (laughs) this comes from. (laughs) Because this was this this presence was also all white. It didn't have any pigmentation. It was just a classic cartoon almost version of a ghost. And I wasn't afraid because it came in a familiar appearance But it was staring and I knew that it wasn't my father. And so I think that caused a bit of unease. So I remember putting the blankets over my head. I start to rub my eyes because in my six-year-old brain, I'm dreaming. And I'm just like, I just need to wake up. And so I pull the covers down from my face and I look and this presence is still here. And... I, again, I close my eyes and I'm starting to rub them really hard, really digging into those eye sockets. <laughs> I don't know why I think that that's going to, maybe it's just a little sleep in my eyes <laughs> that I need to get out. And I open my eyes and it's still there. Mm. And I had this moment where I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to in- interact with this. I know that this is not my father. I know that this is a strange presence. I'm feeling a little bit creeped out right now. I can't go back to sleep. There's no way I'm going to go back to sleep with this person in my room. <laughs> but this presence was blocking the entrance to my to my room. So I had to literally go through it in order to get out. And I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I got to get out of here. <laughs> and so I remember kind of just closing my eyes and running through this presence out of my room and into my mom's room, who is like 2 a.m., and she's dead asleep, and she's been raising three kids all day, yeah. and I'm just like, Mom, there's a ghost in my room, and she's like barely waking up, and I was like, okay, sure, yeah, go back to bed, and I'm no, there is something that is here that is unexplainable. Please, please help me. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure if a parent knows how to necessarily process that information. hmm So I was sent back to my room, at which time this presence was gone, and I remember I turned on my television to keep the light on. I didn't have a nightlight. And and from then on, for the majority of my life, I have slept with my television on or with some light on in my house. I even at one point, I put strings of lights, LED lights, on the top of my roof, and I could just dim it so that it's Mm -hmm. enough for me to go to bed, but... I'm not in complete darkness. And I've lived that way most of my life mm. for 35 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
1: And so aside from the practical impact it's had on you,
0: yes. what's your take
1: on these spooky encounters?
0: Well, I'm curious. Have you had an encounter like this before? Oh, my gosh.
1: Okay. So talking about six-year-old self, uh huh. <laughs> this was my biggest fear. Okay, So yeah. I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, and I was taught that if anything like this were to happen, mm-hmm. it was really the devil disguised as a ghost. Mm. And and I had this little song that I knew that talked about how you only invite Jesus into your heart, and if the devil comes knocking, you say, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think when I was young, mm-hmm. I, I would desperately hope to meet my guardian angel. I would fantasize about that. I would go to sleep and I would wish that my guardian angel would show up and have a conversation with me. I just wanted to know what my guardian angel looked like. And I wanted to have a relationship with my guardian angel. And I wanted to have a relationship with Jesus as well. I wanted Jesus to appear to me. But for whatever reason, I I don't know how I knew all this at that age, but I felt at some point, it was just negotiating. I would say, God, I really want to meet my guardian angel. But at the same time, I don't want to open the veil. Hmm. And I was so afraid that if I had... um, a guardian angel show up that I would have demonic spirits also have access to me. I don't know why I had that theology. I was so young. I yeah. don't know yeah, no. where it came from. It still makes sense to me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I, I grew up and I grew older. I heard of people who had encounters and who had all these experiences and... I kind of shifted my attitude from wanting to meet my guardian angel to being no, i w- I want to really do this by faith. I don't want an encounter with a spirit to influence how how much I believe something. So I want my faith to be pure. This was my logic then. yeah, and for it to be pure, it means I don't want to have any kind of encounter with any spirit, whether they be good or bad. Mm-hmm. So I became grateful that in some ways I was protected Mm -hmm. from having to see beyond the veil. So growing up in the SDA church, I used to go to these camps, and somehow exorcisms always came up Mm -hmm. and how you could test if a pastor was really in tune with God based on how they were able to recognize a demon inside a person and exorcise them. Right. And... And I would always hear about these stories, but I happened to be in the bathroom when one happened, or I always felt protected from it.
0: Having to see those experiences.
1: Having to see those experiences, but I believe yeah. them, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's phase one, phase two. Those carried on for a long period of time, and then in comes my own professional Development and the work of spiritual care. And I
0: would consider that a different phase entirely, where I have just have a different take. It's interesting, and I kind of want to walk through some different phases. I think. For me, I think that encounter that I had with something unexplainable or something that I can look back and say, did I have mental health issues at six? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Very sporadic one-time One-time event, exactly. (laughs) Because I don't have hallucinations at this point of my life, and I haven't had them since. And so having had this touchstone with something unexplainable, I think in some ways made me religious from early on, that I clung to some type of protective power like my mom she taught me how to say my prayers now i lay me down to sleep i pray the lord myself. those mm-hmm. kinds of prayers or like, our father we in heaven i knew those basic ones she'd come from a catholic upbringing but we never we went to church a couple of times in my life i went to easter once <laughs> mm-hmm. so i had these these touch points where I could cling to almost these rituals that I thought were protecting me from something that I that I couldn't see. And I didn't know how to interact with that. And I think a part of what's so even sad about my current experience of feeling ostracized from the church is I think in many ways, church has lost touch with kind of what it is. Like, I feel like it's a gathering for people to say, we've had unexplainable things happen to our life, good and bad. I've had a hundred dollar bill dropped from the sky, was this God, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or miraculously saved from a car crash. I think yeah. church is a moment, a point where people say, man, there's something that I can't quite find reason for. And to lose touch with the community that says, we believe something. things happen that we don't have explanations for, and that might not be purely physical, because This group has now imposed all of these other rules for acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a motivation why a lot of people are drawn to church. Something personally happens to them, and they're looking for answers. Mm -hmm. A way to
1: process or make meaning out of that experience. And I've spoken to a lot of people in the church who have come from different backgrounds and come with all sorts of stories and I've spoken to people who have been in the church their whole lives and have witnessed more metaphysical or spiritual manifestation. Yeah. And religion does help us filter and make meaning out of these realities. But there is a difference between mental illness
0: and... And, and this and spiritual. And I want to get to that. Yeah. Because I think that's where your esper- expertise lies and we can start to divide the line. I think this topic is just so fascinating to me. I have a million thoughts because on one hand, I can say all of this theology, all the ways that we want to be so precise, if it doesn't break down in our actual practical lives, what's the point? And then there's another part of me that I do understand theology to be almost kind of a a spell. It's an enchanted spell where as long as you get all the words right and you get the the, the perfect unlocking here, you can reach the other side of the veil. And sometimes we do treat theology that way, where it's okay, do I got the correct ingredients here in my cauldron, right? (laughs) To get to the other side. And there is something superstitious about religion, however that manifests in your life. And I find it so fascinating, how do I begin to reconstruct what this means to me outside of community, because I'm not welcome in community because of because I'm by, because <laughs> I'm in a relationship with a woman, and there's this fear that now I have, because I've added another ingredient to the pot, that what I'm unlocking behind the veil is not God but the devil, the devil in disguise, and there is a lot of this. Can you say more about that? What is the connection, or the inter-
1: internal dialogue, I'm saying like?
0: Because people who think that the Bible is very plain on saying no to homosexuality and that I have come to a conclusion that says, no, I see a God who allows for love to be love, And of course, I'm very simplifying that from what all of our podcasts have covered, but that they say that this view now has unlocked not a view of God, the true God who will protect you from evil in this world, but of the devil. You are deceived. You are now interacting in the supernatural still, yes, but you're interacting with a demonic force, an evil spirit. Mm. And to me, one, how terrifying yes. <laughs> for, for people to believe that of you or, for you or for myself to even internalize that in any way.
1: Wow. Okay. Because, <laughs> because we have all been indoctrinated in, in such a way that we are vulnerable, creatures and that we really do need to protect our faculties. I mean, a lot of the rules around do's and don'ts in our lives are to not debilitate the spirit and to not make us susceptible. Going back to what we've discussed in terms of a fear-based theology rather than a love-based theology, the thing is, I had to, in my own deconstruction of my faith, had to really come up against that fear. Am I listening to the right voice? Am I veering off and being deceived by the? I mean, that was a legitimate fear of mine. And something I'm sure that the people who love me and don't understand how I've made room for my sexuality it, 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 as a part of who I am and as a part of even my faith are still concerned about.
0: Right. Right. Like- yes. This is a great point because, and I'm coming from the philosophy now that what we do has more of an impact on what channels we're susceptible to. And whether those are channels working from the inside or the outside, what we do is more important than what we believe. And what I mean by that is acts are rituals. Going, Getting up and having oatmeal in the morning, that, that's a ritual. And it has an impact on your body. Your body processes it, it digests it, it uses it for energy. It has an actual impact. And something we were talking about this week off the mic was this idea of sacrifice. And the way that sacrifice plays out in relationships. And the way that God says, make a covenant with me by sacrifice. Why? Well, when you sacrifice something in a relationship...
1: It matters to you more.
0: Yeah. It, <laughs> the, the, the person that you're in a relationship with or if you're sacrificing to be a part of a club or a community, it matters to you more now because it costs you something.
1: Yeah, this is such a good... I mean, I'm glad we're bringing this conversation into this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> because we were looking at it in the context of relationships. And when people who are not mutually invested, where one is sacrificing more in the relationship, we've noticed that that other person who is maybe at an advantage in the relationships, their love doesn't grow fonder. It's often the one who is sacrificing. The most, that that loves
0: the most. Yes, and because it costs them, it's harder to walk away from it. Exactly, they're investing their money, their time, maybe they've destroyed relationships in the process of the pursuit of this relationship, that costs them something, and it means that much more to them. Where the other person, if it didn't cost them anything, then it doesn't have the same value. And that is why sometimes it is appropriate to ask for that sacrifice in relationship. Like even God says, make a covenant with me by sacrifice. And and just understanding a little bit of the psyche in human
1: relationships can help us or illuminate us to why that's a part of God's order, too. That relationship requires sacrifice and mutuality and buy-in. And that it has to be held with the same kind of value. And I wonder how big of a role does sacrifice and ritual play in us falling in love and reciprocating that love?
0: And to that point, what you do is more important than what you believe because your doings are your rituals. And those rituals in some ways are tiny covenants. They're tiny sacrifices here or there. And I think that is what unlocks even within you a greater potential to be good or a greater potential to be evil or a greater potential to be influenced by good or evil. This belief that because LGBTQ acceptance has been thrown into the pot and now you're accessing the devil, that's not how it works. You believing that two consenting mutually reciprocating people could, can love each other is not now opening the door for you to be a monstrous person, right? But if you do monstrous acts and you act bigotedly towards people and you say things that are condescending and you, you create exclusivism, that is act, that act, that doing is doing more harm to you than a, a belief of openness. And so in the ways that we've treated religion, like witchcraft, to to unlock the gods, that having the correct theology is not what's unlocking the gods. I mean, not to say that your beliefs don't matter, but the bigger unlocking potential is your doings, the direction you are facing in your life. Are you moving towards personal growth, personal betterment? Are these things drawing to you? Or are you trying to find ways to cheat, steal, lie? I think those are the things that have a bigger impact on evil working out in your life.
1: Is an amazing point. <laughs> because I do think that sometimes we treat religion this way. And we treat experience and actions like it's secular. We make it separate. We make theology the correct means by which to relate to God and have God use you. And it just makes me wonder is The whole world deprived and without a God. I mean, because I think the same people that hold to this notion that we need to interpret things correctly and use our minds and reason to extrapolate the most, the truest (laughs) version of what the text means, can also acknowledge that the rest of the world is functioning and that People are not completely stolen into a dark, evil force. I am simply stating that unlocking, that hermeneutics are the key or the spell to having good relationship with God, that your life, your actions have a bigger impact on the world and on your relationship with God and on your relationship with yourself than any kind of logic you can come into.
0: And I think it's such a a great point what you are making because, if through hermeneutics and if through your theology you stumble upon a being that you can model yourself after, as we behold, we become changed. I think that is the power of a good theology that that something majestic, something beautiful, something that demonstrates the ultimate embodiment of what loving your neighbor looks like, or what being good in the world looks like, a standard that you can hold yourself to. If that's what theology unlocks for you, great. I mean, that is the power of theology. But if the way that you're doing it is is somehow getting you to have a version of a God that is so ready to pull away his protective force, because if you're too loving to gay people, that you're going to be in trouble. Or if, if the version of God that you have is not an example of who you should be in the world and the actual real life, those are causes for question yeah, and yeah. to reevaluate. But I want to move into some areas that are in your expertise that you've been working with because something that I think historically the church has been very bad at distinguishing, <laughs> demonic possession or mental health issue. I think if you were to only go by what's in the New Testament, they don't talk about mental health issues. (laughs) Everything is perceived as a demonic insertion of being possessed by a force that is outside of yourself and that it now needs to leave your body and that that person is now whole again. Now, can't speak to the exact nature of these experiences because we don't have them on video, we don't know them, but it has left us with a lack of consideration that there might be alternative reasons things might be happening to a person. Yeah. So how do you in your profession as a chaplain how do you come to the Determination. Is this a demon? Is this mental health? (laughs) Well,
1: let me tell you, that's such a big part of my job, Kendra. (laughs) That
0: one's a demon. (laughs) Call in the priest. (laughs) Or are they even? (laughs) That's just too comical. Or are they even as different from one another? Can we? What I mean by that is, can we untangle the the effects of rotting
1: force? in your life, from what happens in the physical space. And I won't speak to everybody's theology, but if we really do believe that the mind, spirit, and body act as one, that they're not separate, then it's really hard to untangle. You can scientifically, through tests and technology, see that there is a biochemical change in the brain. Or that there are neural receptors that are lighting up or not lighting up. And I think when you start to understand that something real is happening in the brain and that by changing the chemicals in the body through medication or whatever it may be, or even just sunlight exposure, (laughs) that there are shifts in the brain, then you have a very physical account, a journal of something that's happening in the body. I remember when I started working in the hospital, I was afraid of working in the unit that I worked. I worked in the acute psychiatry unit. It means that people in the worst of the worst are there. You were like, these demons better not jump out on me. (laughs) Seriously, picture a six-year-old Roxanne who does not want... Encounters with the other side. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There's no rip in this veil. It is protected. And what will it do to me... And my spiritual health, even my physical health, because at this point I'm aware of how in the body illness can live. And step into this room where somebody who you have no other explanation, at least theologically, because you weren't taught that mental illness is a legitimate thing, that this person you believe is possessed Hmm. and that you're supposed to provide spiritual care to. I mean, it is Bonkers, the dissonance between what is happening in the room and what I'm expecting. Just to think that the chaplain goes in thinking they're talking to a demon, what's the point? But here I am, a spiritual care provider, coming to help somebody who is in such desperate need for connection. For whatever reason it may be physical, there is something impeding this person from experiencing the fullness of. Of humanity. Of humanity in that moment. For sure. Not. let me tell you, again, this is one of the parts in my life's journey where my experiences have caused me to reflect on my theology. And I have seen, I've been a part of some of the most beautiful encounters with people in the acute psychiatry unit. And their humanity was not lost on me. That was not interacting with any kind of demon. In fact, mental illness is so mystified in general that if you don't know the markers of what's happening and if you're not familiar with the science behind it.
0: (laughs) I I just have to jump in because I'm reminded of a class that I took at seminary Uh where they were like, this is how you know you're talking to a demon. (laughs) I, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. And they're like, they will not want to recite scripture. So basically, also, if they have supernatural strength, this is a demon. But there are people, mothers, who have picked up babies out of cars because of just this adrenaline of that moment. Yes. But they're like, look for supernatural strength. See if they'll recite some scripture. And if they'll recite some scripture, you're in the clear. Yeah, <laughs> that that That's what we've come down to. Well,
1: oh, it's interesting, though. You say that, and I'm thinking of, yep, yep, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that, (laughs) and it doesn't make me think, oh, was I interacting with a demon then, because this person had supernatural strength and was saying the worst things, calling himself a demon, actually. He he had a whole theology behind it. He felt he could fight the demon by being a demon, and anyway... Mm -hmm. It's mental illness. It's not. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But what's interesting is, so, okay, you're talking about the markers, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, This is how you're talking to a demon. Did they tell you what to do? Pray to Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Okay. (laughs) Well, what what I have found is I've talked to people with all those markers, Mm -hmm. and I've met them with compassion. And you haven't said, like...
0: Legion, who am I speaking to?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) No. I've I've said things like, let's pick a name. Sarah. Sarah. Mm -hmm. Sarah, it sounds like you have been through quite a bit. Mm. And in this moment that you are very, very upset about being locked up in here and not understanding how... You could end up in this situation. Let's say somebody has all of these markers. She's banging up against the walls. She does seem to have an incredible amount of strength. I don't know if it's superhuman, but it's definitely above average. And she was saying all sorts of things. And so let's call her Sarah. And it's interesting because what I've done as a spiritual clinician is simply provide a calm, non-anxious presence to meet them with a lot of compassion, and to do what I do with practically every other patient. Mm. I mean, I do have an assessment and intervention model that I use. And for people with mental illness or with trauma, I have a very gentle approach and a very specific approach. Mm. But in general, I am treating them with a lot of compassion and understanding. And I can only imagine how ineffective... I would be as a chaplain if the whole time I'm distracted by the fact that my soul is in danger because I'm talking to a demon. Or am I even talking to her? There's a demon right here. And I think that the fruits of that conversation are more telling of the forces that were at play than anything she could display in her mental illness. That by the end of the conversation, she felt more connected, which is a sign of health. And I will just add that if everything that is bad is attributed to the devil, then everything that is good and healthy can be attributed to a good force, to godly forces. Yeah. And so the fact that without any paranoia that there was a devil in the room, we could carry on a conversation, that I could go home feeling spiritually nurtured, safe, connected right. to God, and that this person, just by that connection, that was not... Filled with an agenda to cast out that was not, could also experience peace by the end of that conversation Mm. and also enter into connection and seek for opportunities to connect with God. I mean, I'm not spelling out theology here and I'm not casting all the spells of saying, Get out of here, you demon. (laughs) I'm not doing any of that. I am just connecting with another human being in the ways that I know to do. Both professionally, but just in my compassion. Yep, and that's 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 key because for people who mystify what that experience might look like, and who are super afraid of anybody with odd behaviors or with supernatural strength, or, you can have very strong opinions about things that you are that are folk tales in the church. But when you've had these encounters 20, 30, 40, 50, however, 100 times with different people and you don't have to spell out theology or pray or call any kind of name to feel protected, that you can just meet people with your kindness and love and accomplish the same things, experience that having those multiple encounters really does change does make you question, I
0: I, I met this with such fear, but I feel connected to God. We've too mystified this process of mental health, and we've made it demonic forces. And that is why there are so many people in the church with mental health issues, because they think, well, I'm here, I got the remedy, I can't be demon-possessed, so the things that I'm experiencing with mental health is actually nothing to be addressed. We've created this sense or this mixture of, if you're dealing with mental health issues, You just need to pray because that's the devil. Instead of saying, actually, you might need to see a therapist and you (laughs) might need to get medication. And that is completely normal. And that this is a part of a physiological thing that is happening to you. And even if we want to get theological, for those of you who are the Ellen White ones out there, there's there's an interesting quote that she has in Patriarchs and Prophets where she talks about how after the fall that the verse where it says... God put enmity between the serpent and humanity. It's because that this enmity was actually the insertion of the Holy Spirit. And that without the presence of God, ourselves naturally, we would become so in line with evil because that's our fallen nature. I mean, if we want to take it theologically, that is what it said, that there isn't a need of an outside force, That, that we ourselves have the capability of corruption within us, and if you want to look at it that way, it's we all have the potential to die. We all have organs that can fail. Our body can shut down. Death lives within us, but that potential is there all the time. And that when forces become weakened, I'm not sleeping, I'm not eating, I'm not getting enough exercise, and my body becomes just much more vulnerable to the forces of entropy, to the forces of death. Of course, I'm going to be much more susceptible to... To things that look like demonic possession, but is actually my body failing me, is actually sourced in something much more physiological. Exactly. Mental illness
1: is just oftentimes an exaggeration of really healthy individuals. We all have bad thoughts creep in, yep. but we have an ability to shut those thoughts down or to counter them or to move on from them because we are healthy. But people who are going through an episode, and I'll just say this, that a lot of people that struggle with mental illness don't live in a state of crisis all the time. And I think we've done a disservice to anybody who experiences illness in that way because by shutting them out and by being scared of them, we're not setting them up to thrive, which they have a lot of ability to do. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people be very functional. I actually follow a woman who lives with schizophrenia. And she does videos walking us through what it's like when she's in the midst of an episode. And she's very eloquent, very intelligent when she's at her healthiest. She's very in control and can help people who have very healthy minds understand the experience that she goes through when she's not at her healthiest. And so even just her sharing her story and you seeing how just eloquent she is, it helps to kind of demystify schizophrenia is an illness and I think a lot of people with schizophrenia often get labeled as somebody with demonic possession and they experience hallucinations and they hear these voices but just somebody who's in the midst of the desert who hasn't had any water who's in under the heat might see a hallucination or hear a voice it's like can you when you're not getting the appropriate nutrients and you don't have the right balance, it does impact. And, and, yeah. and how do you differentiate those symptoms from what we've come to associate with demonic possession? And I will just say this. I have had many visits with Seventh-day Adventists, who are always surprised to see me, in the psychiatric unit. And sometimes it's interesting because patients call me in when they want an exorcism. But providers, when psychologists and psychiatrists call me into the room, they're not asking me, is this person demon-possessed, or is this in our territory? They ask me, is this person experiencing delusions, or is this normal kind of talk for people in this faith community? And I think that's a really powerful distinction, because they're not really gauging whether
0: they're in crisis because of something happening physiologically or something happening in their kind of. In belief. the spiritual
1: world. Yeah. They're, they're trying to decipher is there a religious sect, community, group that has learned to internalize these experiences with this kind of talk? Mm. Or should we legitimately be concerned for her having delusions? So it's actually quite common, and psychologists are taught to recognize that certain communities speak of encounters in a very delusional kind of way. Sure. And so they call in chaplains to kind of provide their expertise on what's normal for that community to believe, to talk about, and to internalize those experiences.
0: Those are really interesting. I think that's incredibly interesting because I think we need more education in that particular area. And next week, I want us to dive into a little bit about intuition because I think there are ways that we're afraid to engage intuition because we're like, is this actually demonic or is this godly? So we'll table that for next time. But I, I kind of want to go back to the six-year-old self of myself who, who had this encounter with this presence and have not had that encounter again. And so it, it is interesting to me, if I would want to create meaning around what I think that that encounter was in the context of mental health in the context of physical and mental vulnerabilities and in the context of, is there something else out there? For me, I think I've come to a conclusion that I don't like the term demonic possession. I think I would use terms like demonic harassment. If I believe my inner child and I believe that my memory is correct. (laughs) And if I believe that that experience was not, something that I caused. I wasn't playing with Ouija boards. Yeah. The things that we say, well, this happened because you opened these channels. <laughs> Tarot cards. If I want to say that, and it also was not a result of my mental health, if I want to say all of those things, I can say that to me, these presences seem like what I also observe in real life, which is predatory. What I often observe in real life as being evil, which is predatory. Here's a presence who showed up in my room without the consent of my parents. I'm a child, I'm vulnerable. The fact that you do see a lot of children having these supernatural experiences, I think, is also related to the fact that they're not developed. I wasn't developed. I wasn't developed mentally and physically and emotionally and all those things. And I was vulnerable. And just like maggots don't show up unless there's a dead body. Maggots don't come into healthy spaces and lay their eggs there. That they, they start where something is already decaying. And if I want to make that parallel to the spiritual world, I can say that decay also is vulnerability. I think that evil people in this world prey on vulnerable people. I see that happening to women and children still who are being preyed upon because they're walking to work or jogging by themselves. And they are victims of violent crimes and people who who get killed and murdered every day as a result of somebody acting predatorially on somebody who is vulnerable. So even if I wanted to classify that experience as demonic harassment, I don't find it out of line or out of character of what I see about evil in this world, which is something or someone being opportunistic in a situation where somebody is invulnerable. And so I think... The takeaway for me is how do I recognize my vulnerabilities? A woman in this world, I'm 5'2", not very big, not very strong, but I do have to make certain precautions where I live, what, what my habits are, how late at night I go out and live my life, being aware of my surroundings. I'm constantly aware of my vulnerabilities and trying to make certain protections against them whether that's externally physically in the world that i live in or internally how do i fortify my mind and have a regular sleep schedule and eat proper balanced meals so that i'm not hangry all the time those are things that i can try to fortify as much as i can fortify and that there are people and maybe even entities that will still try to attack harass annoy yeah but you're saying so,
1: you're saying something very powerful and you're speaking to your own sense of agency and autonomy and I think that sometimes we forget that as God's created beings and if we really do believe in this order of love that I keep referring to it that that there are boundaries that love is meant to protect these boundaries so that everybody can coexist that a contra nature would be to violate boundaries right. to Do harm means that in some way you've ruptured the bonds that are in place, the boundaries in fact that are in place to protect every human being. And while we can't do away with, say, evil in the world, we can be affirmed and encouraged in that we are made with agency and autonomy Mm. and that... We have a God that has protected that order so that we can move about in this world with a sense of individuality and empowerment. And so I appreciate God's sacrifice, circling back to that part of our conversation, in that it allowed us to have greater access to the good forces in our life. That, that we don't have to be imprisoned and bound or in constant state of decay, that we also have access to life and good forces that protect us. God is, is an active force that we can call upon, but is also a force that has empowered us to take care of ourselves and to be mindful of the things that
0: we are doing so that we're feeding our spirit things that fortify it. Removing... And I'm not saying that you were saying this, but kind of removing the victim blaming. If you are encountering something that is of the supernatural and it feels nefarious, that's not necessarily your fault. That's not something you did. That's not something, just like if I were to go jogging this evening and get attacked, or if I was jogging in the broad daylight and get attacked, that happens all the time. This is a predatory person that took advantage of a vulnerable moment and a vulnerable person to enact evil upon them. And I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't call this into my life, this is something that happened. And if I survive that moment, I can try and bring this person to justice or what have you. But things that happen in our life that have nothing to do with what we did or how we called things into our life, but that this is just evil working out in the world in ways that evil does, which is to harass and destroy.
1: Exactly. It's so good. I'm glad we had an opportunity to talk about this because I think The way we have mystified this subject is we've made it either a very entirely other and powerful force that overtakes us or that we were just so neglectful that we invited that force into our lives. And I think we're stepping into a dynamic or an identity of saying, bad things do happen. There are legitimate predators out there. And I can be vulnerable at times. But also, I'm more than my vulnerabilities. There are structures in place. There's this relationship with God. I have my own commitment to do good. I promote wellness in my own life. So I'm
0: not entirely lost to. Some force that's going to come in this world. You have all of this, you have all this health to you yes. that you are coming to any situation with a lot of resources and you don't have to be afraid. Not sure how to end this conversation because it's one of those topics that I could go on forever about. We covered a range, including my own spooky encounter with the supernatural. But more importantly, we discussed the necessity of understanding the markers of a mental health crisis and not confusing mental illness with demonic possession. My own pivot toward religion began with a supernatural encounter but it's ending with an understanding that evil no matter what the origin is something we don't have to face alone whether that battle resides solely in our mind or our encounters are with real life predators or maybe it's even a brush with something truly otherworldly whatever it is there's help and we're not alone we may not always be able to access the help we need from within ourselves. And so it's important to know that there are people in our life who are willing to help. There are friends, there are healthcare professionals available today who can carry us through moments of vulnerability. We may have to face many fears in life, but we don't have to be afraid to pick up the phone and call someone who loves us. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Imago Gay as we explore our redefined series, Bigger Boxes for a Bigger God. I am so grateful for all of you who have reached out and have been sharing your personal stories. If you have a spooky story that you'd like to share, you can share them with me on Instagram at Kendra with an X. If you are enjoying this content, please be sure to rate this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you want to follow our co-host today, spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle, you can do so on Instagram at Roxanne Marie. And just a reminder, this month is Kinship Awareness Month. So if you are an LGBTQ Christian, Adventist, non-believer, ex-believer, we're here to create safe spaces for you to have community. So please be sure to sign up and become a member today. There is so much health and healing in affirming communities. You can do so at sdakinship.org. And you can also follow our sponsor for this week, Spectrum Magazine, at spectrummagazine.org.